Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I'm joined by Michael Scott Moore. Michael Scott Moore is a journalist and author who has one of the craziest stories I have ever heard. Michael travelled to Somalia to write about piracy and the ways to end it. Whilst he was on this trip, Michael was kidnapped by a Somali pirate gang and was held captive on land and on board a Somali pirate ship for a total of 977 days after his original ransom was set at $20 million. Michael joins me on the show to discuss the details of his experience. I ask him about what life is really like on board a Somali pirate ship and Michael explains the crazy story of how he watched the film Captain Phillips with a group of Somali pirates whilst still in captivity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider heading over to YouTube where you can watch the episode and clips and highlights from the show at youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. Find us on Instagram at Freedom Pact and drop us a follow on TikTok. That's at Personal Development. Okay, that's the housekeeping out the way. On with today's episode with Michael Scott Moore. You were kidnapped by Somali pirates and held captive for, for 977 days. Before this happened, what was your level of apprehension about going to Somalia, knowing what you knew through your work as a journalist? I'm sure you had a pretty detailed picture of what you were going into at the time. Oh, definitely. Um, so actually, my the, the guy that I went with, Ashwin Rahman, um, and I had thought about going to Somalia for a couple of years before that. Um, so we met quite close to uh, Somalia in Djibouti. And he's a documentary maker who had been in and out of war zones for several years since the start of the Afga- Afghanistan war, as a matter of fact. And we talked about going and then we decided not to because it didn't seem safe enough. Um, but it was a trial of 10 Somali pirates in Hamburg in 2011 that sort of changed everything just because that provided, first of all, a story and second of all, um, some connections to possibly go safely. Um, by then, other journalists were going through um, central Somalia, this sort of path um, and central Somalia um, now and then. So it was sort of a beaten path and we were not going to stray for that, from that. And in fact, that was between Galkayo and Hobio in central Somalia was relatively, um, um, it was not just relatively known by journalists, but also um, extremely relevant to the story in Hamburg. In other words, five out of 10 um, pirates in that trial were from Galkayo, which, which was our starting point. Now, you were captured on land. Now, when most people think about Somali pirate stories um, and people envision uh, these captures, they take place on open waters. What is the reality of the, the captures? Is it more typical to be captured on land or sea? What What did you know? And, and do you have any figures on that at all? Oh, it's definitely more more typical to be captured on sea. Uh, the By the time we got there, I think there were upwards of 700 uh, hostages being held in Somalia, and maybe half a dozen of them had been captured on land. I mean, uh, most of them were seafarers captured at sea. Um, a few were sort of Kenyan aid workers. Maybe those guys got caught later, as a matter of fact, and uh, some other European and one American aid workers. So we knew that the gangs could be dangerous on land too, but the 
um, what they normally did was work at sea. And actually, when I got captured, Slate ran a hot take about how Michael Scott Moore was not technically captured by pirates because uh, it was just a bunch of thugs on land with guns. But um, And that that was uh, true as far as it went, except that three months later, they put me on board that they had hijacked. And I don't know if Slate ever ran a correction. So. <laughs> well, in that moment um, when you were being captured, did you know what was going on at the time? When did it click for you? And what were the initial thoughts running through your mind, if you can even recount those at all? Because I'm pretty sure it must be really hard to recount something so traumatic. No, it's very clear. Um, first of all, it took a few seconds. You know, I, we we got stopped by a technical, which is a battle wagon, sort of just a Toyota with a cannon in the back, and they aimed the cannon through the windshield, I thought, well, this isn't good, um, but maybe it's just a traffic stop. And I saw the gunman running towards the car, and I thought, no problem. I have my German passport on me. I can identify myself. Will this all be over in a few seconds? And then they fired into the air. And, I mean, those preliminary thoughts were nothing but denial. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew very well what was going on, but I, I was looking for the best interpretation of it until there was gunfire um and of course i mean i was thinking um i'd like to rewind my life now uh back to before i came to somalia uh i was really hoping to avoid this and oh my god what are my family and friends gonna think because I, at least i knew what i was going through um, and once the news got to my mom, for example, I, I knew that nobody was going to know, know what I was going through. Um, so all those things went through my head at, in those in those seconds. Um, and I remember it fairly clearly, partly because I had to reconstruct it uh, for my book. Can you prepare for something like that when, you know, you know you're going into a, uh, an environment like Somalia that comes with risk? Are there, are there any measures you take before going to prepare for a possibility uh, like a capture, or is this something that you know you you had no preparation for? There were no plans in place that you really hadn't thought about beforehand. Uh, both. So I had thought about it. I had some plans in place, but not enough. So in other words, I should have left behind um, social media passwords and things like that for my um, family and friends. Mm-hmm. I know that now that I'm on the board of, the, of Hostage US, there are things you can do beforehand. Um, you can, uh, so one th- the things that I did do were, well, okay, in case I'm captured, I'm not going to have my laptop with me. I left my American passport behind in, in Kenya. Um, and as it turned out, the duffel bag I left behind with things at a hotel in Kenya, um, I told my mom about on the phone at some point. And then some American, um, officials went there and got that stuff. So they made sure to secure my passport, right? Um, and of course, even though I talked about it on the phone, there was nothing the pirates could do from Somalia. So those were things they definitely would have wanted to have. On the other hand, I got captured with things I couldn't avoid having, including my, uh, one of my passports, um, a camera, um, and notes from the first 10 days of being in Somalia. I, I was so busy absorbing stuff that I took a hundred pages of notes in those first 10 days. And so those, those went away. Wow. But you can't do anything about that. I, the 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 other things that you have to do, of course, are higher security, and that's what we did. But that fell apart that day, mm-hmm. partly because there was a 
there was a plot to betray us. I mean, I mean, on behalf of maybe not the security guys themselves, but um, the within that clan that was supposed to be hosting us. So were they local security or security you brought yeah. with you? No, local security. Yeah, but we hired a, um, a Somali elder in Berlin who had taken other journalists down to that region, uh, who was a member of that clan to, to help keep us safe. So he's the one who received all the money. It was his job to distribute it properly. Um, and um, I don't know if people turned against him or if he turned against us. It comes very close to him, the betrayal. I, I haven't determined whether it was him per se. Um that gets a little bit vague, but uh, it was it was not it, it was just not good to trust him, um, even though he had brought a German TV journalist down to the same place about a year before safely. And it was more dangerous the year before, I think. Um, so, Not that I'm sure you're in any rush to, but if you were to to travel back to Somalia now, what different measures would you take? and would you take a different approach to security? Uh, I'm not going back to Somalia in my lifetime, as far as I know. But uh, any any situation like that, I would take just about the same measures. Um, maybe a couple of differences, but um, no. I mean, Ashwin and I were fairly careful, but but it was risky. I mean, we knew it was going to be risky. So um, before I got out, there was a piece in the New Yorker about how things can go wrong on the spur of the moment when you're out in the field, um, especially someplace dangerous. And that, that's what happened. So. Some context on Somalia. It's one of those places that if you say Somalia to someone, there's not a lot they can tell you about the, the country. Um, but the, it's just the, the, the word pirate is just synonymous. When you say Somalia, it's the first thing a lot of people think of. What is the sort of background context to this problem? And I know this is something you tackle in your, in your book. You challenge the idea that, you know, they're essentially uh, angry fishermen. Um, what, what is the background to this pirate problem in Somalia? What's the, what's the reality of that? Well, so first of all, the fact that nobody knows very much about Somalia is one reason I wanted to go. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's still... The idea that there should be places that are off limits for journalists is still irritating to me. Um, mm. I mean, I'm going to go to far fewer of them now since this happened. But um, so, for example, I would be in Ukraine now uh, with some of my friends from Berlin if this hadn't happened. Um, I'm I'm trying not to go towards guns anymore. But um, Somalia is has been a mess since er the early 90s. Uh, because um, until then, until the end of the Cold War, um, there was a strongman president in charge named Siad Bare, who was a lot like um, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Um, Gaddafi fell more recently, so people know him a little bit better. Um, the, the similarity is that nobody liked him. He's the guy that could keep the country together. And once he fell, it fell apart. Um, all the clans decided to start... Um, uh, fighting over territory. Um, there have always been clan uh, borderline disputes within Somalia. Otherwise, Somalia is very cohesive racially, by the way. Um, it hasn't been carved up by European um, colonialism the, the way other places have, or it hasn't been invented by European colonialism. It's, it's had pieces of it shaved away 
by some of those um, lines that were drawn by Europeans. Uh, so th there's a sense of greater Somalia um, and a kind of a, Somalis who live there want perhaps more territory. Um, but within Somalia, it's a, it's a very cohesive country racially and culturally. But un, as a subset of that, the clans don't don't agree on you know their own territorial lines. So ever since then, there has been a low grade state of civil war. Not that bullets are flying as soon as you land on, land in a plane, but certain places they lob mortars back and back and forth. And um, that chaos, that relative chaos, um, which is caused by the fact that the center to Mogadishu didn't have very much power over the whole country. Uh, for a while, the president was known as the mayor of Mogadishu, um, meant that there was no navy, uh, no strong armed forces, and nothing to defend the coastline. So in the 90s, you had um, very rapacious uh, fishermen coming in from European countries and also from Asian countries to take fish. And that's a problem up and down the, the African coast. Uh, wherever the navy is weak or the defenses are weak, um, then these companies come in and take fish either within an, at the economic zone or within territorial waters, which is outright theft of food. Hmm. Um, and that's still going on, by the way. But by the time we heard, and so in the 90s, there were um, small-time efforts to go and stop those fishing ve vessels <clears throat> and charge them a license fee of maybe $50,000, um, which was sort of an early model for hijacking ships off Somalia. Uh, these these guys who were not working for the federal government, but for regional governments, um, um, would go out with guns and say, look, you need a license to fish here. This is our fishing grounds. And um, they would say, okay, how much is the license? And then it would be kind of a phony license. But within 24 hours, in an exchange of maybe 50,000 bucks, the whole thing would be over. And so nobody heard about it. Yeah. By the time you and I heard about Somali pirates in 2005, they, these, the, this kind of behavior organized. And um, you don't capture a tanker or a big cargo ship sliding past Somalia without um, uh, an, an organized criminal network and funding from the top down. So it's not like the, the fishermen just decide to go out and buy Kalashnikovs um, and, uh, and boats that could travel hundreds of miles off the coast and, and go capture these massive ships um that required you know a capitalistic arrangement um that was that was a lot like the mob mm -hmm. um, and that's that's exactly what somali pirates are wow. i have so much admiration and respect for the work that you and your colleagues do in this type of journalism um whether it be yourself or uh, another journalist i spoke to siddharth kara who, who traveled to the congo to investigate uh, the cobalt crisis there oh, when yeah. i hear stories about this and you see it on the news now these journalists they're out in dangerous places like ukraine and you can see uh, missiles being fired over their heads mm -hmm. As a journalist who's 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 been in environments like this that that come with risk, does or how does the reward outweigh the risk to you personally in your sense of meaning and purpose that you find in that work? Well, once it all goes south. I mean, once I got kidnapped, then it doesn't, the reward does not outweigh the risk. You know, mm -hmm. I wish I hadn't gotten kidnapped. 
um, the 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 problem is that for especially for a story like Ukraine, you ha- it has to be covered. You have to have journalists in there um, reporting on what Russia is doing. There's no there's no alternative. Um, uh, it's and that's something that you have to weigh. Um, the the mistakes that other journalists made before I got kidnapped that I was aware of. Um, this included um, um, David Rode, who actually escaped. He's a friend of mine now, but he his story was was interesting because it was typical of the the journalists who got kidnapped in Afghanistan and Pakistan. They really wanted a, a kind of a good interview with a high ranking um, member of the Taliban or the Haqqani network, and um, um, so they pushed it. They, you know, got into a car with some, you know, slightly unknown people, and then they wound up getting kidnapped. Um, I was determined not to do that, right? but there, you know, there are other risks in Somalia. So, um, we, Ashwin and I, both talked about it that uh, beforehand. We, in fact, we talked about those cases, and um, Ashwin said, "Yeah, no story is worth your life," and that's mm. true. It's, it's not not worth getting kidnapped and putting everybody else through what my family went through either so uh but there are um there are a lot of stories where you have to weigh those things um uh, so that's the problem so getting back to your experience then um you mentioned you were eventually moved uh onto a ship but and up to that point where you were moved onto a ship how long uh were you on land up until that point three months Three months. And what were your surroundings like in that initial three months after you've been captured? What what was your environment? Were you kept in a room? Was it a cell? Can you paint a picture of what that looked like? Mostly outdoors. So they they first, as soon as they kidnapped me, they took me to an outdoor camp. And there were two other hostages there from the Seychelles, two fishermen. And I, I remained with one of those fishermen for the next nine months. We saw his and only occasionally. Um, but we were held sometimes inside prison houses, which were horrible, dirty, and very bare houses, not no furniture or anything like that, um, but sometimes out in the bush. And the pirates sort of kept us moving, partly because there was overhead surveillance. So um, for those first three months, we moved around quite a lot. Uh, sometimes we were indoors, and sometimes we were out just camping. <laughs> and in that initial sort of three months, what sort of long-term thinking is going on in your head? Are you thinking, I just need to survive until um, help finds me? Do I need to start um, putting together a, a sort of attempt at a, a plan? What's the long-term thinking going on in your head initially? Uh, yeah, the first idea was, okay, patience, but the, also uh, as far as I could <clears throat> assess any new location, because I didn't have my glasses almost instantly. They broke my glasses. I normally wear glasses. Um, so I was blind. I was half blind. Um, as far as I could, whenever we went someplace new, I tried to case the joint or case the location and see if there was any possibility of getting away. Um, and I did that. That became a habit. Um, uh, once I was on the ship, all summer long, I thought about jumping um, because I'm a surfer and we were only a mile from shore. Um, but the fact was that we were so deep in Somalia and so far from anything 
um, that was 100% secure. It was impossible to imagine what would happen even if I got away from the guards. Um, Once we were out in the, when we were out in the in the countryside, um, I could think about finding a road, right? If if I could think about getting away from the camp, I could think about finding a road. But then what? I mean, at the very best, you wait for a while until a truck comes, and then you trust that the truck driver doesn't care about the pirates. You know, mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't feel a clan relationship to whoever the pirates might be, and won't call you know call them about you. Um, because it's obvious what you are by the time you get out. Um, you're you're white. You're a Westerner, or you know every other hostage I met was not white. But you're an outsider, and um, Somalis are very sensitive to who's an outsider and who isn't. Um, even within clan lines, by the way, not not just within a Somali context. Uh, so you know everyone knows about pirates. What's a foreigner doing out here in the bush? You know, these so these things go through your head. Hmm. Um, and so will an average person you meet or uh, sort of a random person you meet be sympathetic? Coin toss. You don't know. And how big was this clan um, that held you captive? How how many are we talking here? Well, the clan is the clan itself is big, but the the pirate gang itself. Um, which was organized around clan lines. I mean, it was a dominant, a Sa'ad clan dominant pirate gang, um, which meant it was based in Galmudug and not north of the, the line in Puntland. Um, as soon as you crossed over into Puntland, uh, there were new pirate gangs. Um, and there might have been a few other clans involved, maybe even for representation by the bosses who were, you know, had a financial interest. Um, but it was pri- primarily Saads, and I would say we probably saw hundreds of pirates. So as a pirate network, the wider gang was probably hundreds of people. Um, the, then you have to think about the community support, people who might have cooked pasta and that kind of thing, um, a little more. But by no means was um, all of Galmudug, the state at the time, um, you know, full of pirates it was um it wasn't the whole Saad clan that was holding us hostage and how long into holding you hostage do they lay out the original terms of your release and do you hear what those terms are yeah because i had to relay them so it took a week oh, wow. <laughs> it took a week before they put a phone in my hand i mean i wow. knew that was the first thing that had to happen right i'm i'm a hostage so they 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 need to make the hostage make a phone call. Mm. Um, and so I don't know why that took so long, but by then my mom was ready for a phone call. I, w- I should have called the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting where I had a, a, a grant, but the pirates took my notes, so I didn't have any phone numbers except the, my mother's in my head. So at gunpoint, you know, um, when I said, when they said they didn't have my notes, I had to call mom. Um on that phone call, they said the demand was $20 million, and they didn't move from that position for over a year. Um, I mean, everyone knew that was bullshit, right? Everyone mm. knew that it was starting gambit, but why they didn't move you know, for months from $20 million, which is ridiculous, I don't understand. They weren't good negotiators either. 
Because after that, they claimed about the expense of holding holding people hostage, right? The longer they held you hostage, the more money they expected. And it just doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, when you make a, that phone call and you relay a figure like that, what is your level of optimism and hope at that point? Oh, very low. I mean, uh, I just wanted to hear a familiar voice. Um, it was nice to hear my mom, but I didn't um, have any expectation that I was going to go free in 72 hours or anything like that. I mean, mm. but the parents did say if, he, if we don't have $20 million in 72 hours, we're going to stop food. Um, I didn't I didn't think any of that was serious. And I was right. I mean, they did stop food for the rest of the day. But by the evening, we had bottled water, maybe pasta, I don't know, bread. Now, when you were eventually moved, um, as you mentioned, to a ship, um, what was the purpose of them moving you to a ship? Why did why why did they move you to a ship? Why didn't they just keep you on land where you were? Yeah, good question. I think because they were sick of overhead surveillance. That's one thing. Because we kept moving around um, because they kept hearing planes and seeing drones, uh, okay. and also um, probably to consolidate the guard teams. So once we were on the ship. You know, there were other hostages there already, and there were already a, there was already a contingent of guards on the ship. So, you know, why pay twice? I guess it, that was two separate factions of the pirate gang, um, as a matter of fact. So um, there had to be some sort of arrangement, but it did it did cut down on the, the need for full time guards. I think. What does life look like on a Somali pirate ship? From one, the perspective of yourself and two for the pirates right so i'm as far as i know i'm the only westerner who lived on a hijacked ship um uh, I, I mean long term uh, yeah. on on one of these ships that um you know have become that sort of get hijacked and then deteriorate it, it was grim um after a while because at first we had the generator going we had good food coming from the from the kitchen i mean the frozen vegetables and meat uh we could fish over the side of the the ship for um um snapper and grouper and sea bass and stuff like that i mean the fish that we were catching fresh was not bad and then the hold was full of tuna um this ship by the way this was a typical tuna ship um that somalis complain about but it was captured 700 miles off the coast <laughs> So it was nowhere near Somali territorial waters when it was actually hijacked. Yeah. Um, and uh, Taiwanese-run um, tuna vessel is not, you know, it's not an environmental thing. It's not a, um, it's an industrial factory ship. Um, it's not a pleasant thing, but this is how our sushi gets caught. Um, and because the men were still fresh as hostages i mean they had just been captured in march and we got we were on board in april i guess that's three and a half months after i was captured um two and a half months wait a minute two and a half um we it was nice to be with them i mean they were still optimistic i mean they were still you know newbies basically as as hostages and so the first couple of months were not bad it was boring but it was better than living on land because there were no insects on the ship no mosquitoes no flies um and it was just nice to have company 
uh, it was far better to have a bunch of people, even if we couldn't speak their language, um, far better to have the company of 28 other hostages than just to sit around in the dust with uh, some armed Somalis who you also couldn't talk to. <laughs> and how, how long were you on this ship? Uh, five months. Five, five months. months. Yeah. You mentioned there about it being boring. Um, th- this, is, this, this is something that one of the main questions I had when I when I was looking at your story, when you are held captive for, for such a long time and you are deprived of so much, what do you do to keep your mental faculties in check? Because obviously you want to stay sharp, you want to stay, you know, you want to keep your mind busy, but there's limited ways in which you can do that. So what do you do? Well, anytime I found a pen and paper, um, writing helped. Uh, and y- yoga or any kind of exercise also helped. I, c- mm-hmm. I couldn't do very much on the ship, but um, we did find ways to, to exercise. Uh, you know, you could do pull-ups on the pipes on the ship, and uh, some of the guys jogged in place. I I did a limited series of yoga postures in my cabin, which was very cramped before I went to bed and that kind of thing. So um, that stuff helped, but I could feel myself deteriorating. I mean, I you know, here I was on a ship thinking, Maybe I can swim ashore if the circumstances were right. And um, I could feel myself getting weaker by the week. Um, I could tell that I was not going to necessarily be up for that swim after a while. You mentioned briefly about um, your food situation. How did that change and develop over time? And what did your diet look like in the first say year to the second year did it change at all did it diminish did they play with the amounts they were giving you no it was mostly about whether um i was on land or on the ship so on land the food was just terrible because the somalis were cooking and they were indifferent about what they fed you so sometimes you got pasta out of a plastic bag i mean literally just pasta and cooked onion in a plastic you know grocery bag uh which you ate with a fork or uh beans i had a lot of beans um, not with any salt, by the way. Um, sugar, but not salt. It was kind of strange. Uh, and then tea, very sugary tea. That I mean, that was probably half my calorie intake was was a thermos of sugary tea. Um, and then on on the ship, you just had fresher food, better food, and more variety. I mean, as as far as food went, the ship was kind of luxurious. Uh, and that was only because they still had supplies in the kitchen. Once all that ran out. I think the men, so by then I had left the ship, but I think the men had started to rely on the tuna, the frozen tuna, more. Um, and um, slowly, you, you know, the ship itself deteriorated and they they had to move ashore. I, I mean, eventually these ships give out. You know, so, One of the s- things that fascinate me with stories like yours, and this is something that... Um, I spoke to, uh, I'm not really familiar with Nick Yaris. This is a man who spent uh, 22 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And he was telling me about his relationship with um, his prison guards and that over time he actually stopped resenting them and and, and almost became friends with a few of them. Yeah. What was your relationship with your captors originally in, say, the first month, two months, three months, and how did your relationship and dialogue, well, not dialogue, but how did your relationship with them change over time? Well, I mean, I was angry. Um, maybe not even for the first few months, for the fir- but for the first couple of years, 
Um, mm. You, but you you do get used to the guard's behavior. I mean, at first, of course, you're afraid of anything they're going to do or um, afraid of their reactions. Um, and but eventually, you learn what what they respond to and what they don't. And yeah, I mean, of, of course, some you can talk to. Um, some, even when I spoke a, a few words of Somali, didn't want to hear about it from me because I was an infidel. Then um, I was, you know, a hostage. I was cattle, essentially. But um, some responded and tried to speak English, and we could have some conversations. And the, that became more important just to me once I was off the ship and being held alone. Um, um, after the ship, I had no one else to socialize with except Somali pirates. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, of course, it's every day has 24 hours in it. You can't be you can't be angry all the time. And um, the pirates also can't be on uh, that kind of um, they can't be ready to shoot you all the time either. So there yeah. are there were afternoons where we had perfectly interesting conversations. And one of the, the things I think that would would scare most people is the threat of not only you know being captured indefinitely but the threat of violence at any time did these guards ever threaten violence for violence sake or out of boredom or did they you know play any sort of um a, a games with the with the, the people they captured of that nature was there ever you know a constant threat of violence from them so yes and no. Um, I mean, there was no systematic violence, um, no systematic torture or anything like that. Hmm. But when they wanted to make a point, especially to a government or a family, um, they certainly did abuse a hostage. I mean, I just got slugged every now and then by um, a boss, maybe two bosses who, you know, weren't just didn't have any self control. Um, but my friend, Roly, one of the fishermen from the Seychelles, um, they made a film of stringing him up from a tree by his ankles and uh, whacking him with the bamboo pole. And then they sent that that video to his family and to his government. So um, there, there was some systematic, that was torture, some systematic torture, but that was a, a um, for the sake of a, a video. Um, I've heard other stories about seafarers being treated that way, and um, they always chose, you know, someone that they considered an infidel, um, either someone who was not Muslim or an Iranian. So the Sunni-Shia divide was important, um, and they treated them like that. I mean, that what happened to Roly was not unique, uh, but it was occasional, and it was not. Um, it wasn't constant, uh, you know, it wasn't like being held by um, Al-Shabaab or ISIS. Do you think they ever at any point felt any level of empathy for you? Uh, yes, some of the guards did. So by the end of my captivity, I knew that the guards were sick of their own jobs. Um, I, some of us had started to like each other, and I think they had start stopped seeing the point of of doing it um partly because they knew that the negotiations had brought the final um amount of money to a level where they weren't going to get any more for continuing to hold me um so from, from their point of view it was just lost time 
And so what were they doing guarding Michael with guns when they didn't even hate Michael? <laughs> so at the end of the summer in 2014, they they talked about um, a labor strike. Um, wow. One of the guys told me about that, and um, they even threatened it. I th I think the boss even took the the top the guard leader away, and um, shortly after that, I was I was released. Um, I didn't quite understand everything that happened, but once the guard leader was went away in a car, um, the other guards were optimistic. I I was convinced I was about to get sold to another group. I I wasn't optimistic at all, but um, that was apparently one step in the labor action mm. <laughs> so at that point is being sold to another group a worse prospect than you were already in was that the worst possible thing that could happen yeah because uh this would have been the end of a very long cycle of negotiations which then would have started up again mm. yeah not I'm not talking after the fact. I'm talking in the midst. Now, did you ever or were you ever able to feel any empathy for the guards yeah. and the situation they were in? Sure. I mean, if it's true that um, almost none of the pirates I met were fishermen or former fishermen, um, what the, it's also true that almost all of them were poor. I mean, the, they, most of the pirate, low-ranking pirate guards that I met became pirates because they had no job prospects. Mm. Of course. And uh, some of them were not naturally violent guys. You could tell that. Um, and they would have done something else in a heartbeat if there had been job opportunities. Um, and I knew that in theory going in. Uh, it was interesting to see it, you know, right in front of you. Um, but the guards, I mean, the whole gang is, a, is an organized crime network um with rules enforced by violence so they had gotten gotten into a situation where they had to answer to very violent bosses i did i, I had no sympathy for the bosses i mean you could, when the bosses came in you could tell they were mean guys i mean they had you have to be mean once you're at a certain rank in, a, in an organization like that so now one of the crazy subplots within an already crazy story of yours is you and you must be the only person on the planet to be able to say this. You actually watched the film Captain Phillips <laughs> whilst you were being held captive by Somali pirates, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you must be the only person uh, who's able to say that. Um, what was that experience like? Well, uh, so first of all, I, maybe I'm not. There was still seafarers being held. And um, what happened was the the pirates, I noticed one day that all my guards had new phones. So, so there was an influx of cash or something, and there was new, just new equipment. And some of them had fancy newer phones that were obviously loaded with new media. And um, one day, I was just lying on my mattress in the afternoon. And the flies were buzzing, and there were a couple of guards um, in my room watching a movie very intently on one of these new phones. And um, I could hear the movie. I didn't recognize the movie. I was trying to imagine what kind of English language movie they would be so interested in that I didn't recognize. So in other words, it, if it was going to be subtitled in Somali, um, it would have been an older film. And I was trying to place the film, and I couldn't. Like, what are they watching? Because they were really interested. I'm like, damn Oh fuck! That's Tom Hanks. 
<laughs> and then I knew they were watching Captain Phillips. And then it was like, well, why are they watching Captain Phillips? Everyone knows how that ends for the pirates. Yeah. You know, um, but of course they were watching either because they knew people involved um, or or for like tips in case of a military raid, <laughs> which were not forthcoming. But um, when after a week or two, one of the guards handed me that phone and said, Michael, you know this movie? You want to watch it? I said, yeah, okay, sure. Um, he said that he knew the one pirate who had been captured alive and, and then sent to trial and prison in New York. He said, oh, yeah, Abdul he's a friend of mine. Wow. Uh, so, he, in fact, they were clan brothers or something like that. He was from a slightly different clan. Actually, a very different clan. But anyway, um, that's one reason they were interested is partly because um, they knew people or they were aware of people who were in, directly involved in that case, but also they were seeing pirates on the big screen, right? It's a Spielberg film. So, and the, when that guy gave me um, the phone to watch, it was the first time anyone handed me a phone outside of some sort of official phone call. Um, and I was very aware of what I was holding in my hands, right? And it was another fly-blown afternoon, and he went to sit with his friend in the corner, and they watched me with their guns. Um, but I'm like, well, how do I make a phone call? <laughs> mm. How do I do this without alarming them? Yeah. Um, and the first step was turning down the volume, and they they caught on to that. So I didn't get So whilst they're watching this film, what what, what are their reactions? Are they, are they almost, are they proud to be represented? Are they angry? What, what were you picking up from their reactions? No, they were just fascinated. Just? They were just, they were just watching very carefully. Yeah. Wow. Just fascinated. And have you been able to, to watch that movie since, or does that just sort of bring up too much for you to be able to watch a film like that? No, it's fine. I mean, I, I, mean, I only saw 45 minutes of it in a prison house. And then afterwards I watched the whole thing. Um, I was impressed both times by the atmosphere that um, Spielberg got, I, you know, they couldn't film it in Somalia, but it felt like Somalia. Um, I think they filmed it in Morocco. So all that, you know, all hail his set designer and costume designer, I suppose. Um, all that was good. Then there was, there was one scene that I saw while I was there um, of some Somali pirates getting selected on the beach, right? So mm. some guy goes and says, we, you know, we need pirates for an operation. And, you know, you guys are poor boys from the, the town uh, who wants to join us. And, you know, these guys raised their hands. And while I was sitting there, I'm like, I have never heard of that. Where did Spielberg get that? You know, who, damn it, the research. And then, then it occurred to me, it's total bullshit. They would yeah. never do that in public. That's why, you know, it took a minute of reflection, but I, um, you know, he did that for dramatic purposes um, uh, on his film. You, you don't, you don't do a, you do something that that's visible on film. Um, and so that, that little thing had to be selected. And I actually, I asked one of the pirates about it. I said, was that, does that ever happen like that? He's like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. What an unbelievable perspective to be able to have, man. Um, <laughs> are you, the, I mean, the way you talk about this now it is incredible to see that, you know, the spirit that you're able to talk about this now in, are, are you in a place now I know we spoke about empathy, but are you, are you in a place now where you can feel any level of forgiveness at all? Yes. And I consciously did that while I was there. So I, I, um, 
I was angry and vengeful for so long that at some point I simply decided to do something else. And that was actually the only sort of freedom I had was to change my mind about how to approach it. Um, so, yeah. And in the meantime, um, I try to keep applying that forgiveness. It's it's not always easy. Um, uh, I mean, I, what I decided at the time was to forgive my guards. Um, I'm not sure it rose to forgiving my bo the bosses. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's been a lot to think about because there's been a trial in the meantime, which is not yet over. Um, uh, so there's, there's been a lot to think about in the meantime. And uh, when it's over, I will write about that. And I want to talk, um, just to finish off, I want to talk about um, immediate life after, but just to run this story off before I ask you one or two questions on that. Um, if you could just explain to our audience um, what brought about your release. Oh, a ransom. <laughs> uh, my mom put a fund started a fund uh and a lot of people sort of piled into it and um she taught then she talked the pirates down on the phone i mean she was the voice on the phone right um and they blinked by the way they at the end they came down from a few million to 1.6 or 1.8 and then in the end they didn't get 1.8 but um that was evidently my market price <laughs> so. Is it is there any fear that when these people receive their ransom that they would just hold on to you anyway? Yes, uh, there were a few tense hours because my mom uh, and some other people were um, kind of in a room waiting for the news to to filter out that I was in an airborne plane, you know. Um, and the pirates waited several hours, I think long enough to run the money through a money counter. Um, they said they needed time to bring me back from the bush, but I was not being held in the bush. I was being held in a prison house really not far from the airport. Um, I mean, I could see and hear planes landing and taking off from the airport. So when I learned later that they said, oh, we have to bring Michael back from the bush, I'm like, that's bullshit. Um, so there were some tense hours, but my uh moms the people surrounding my mom said you know once they reach an agreement somali pirates tend to honor it because they're businessmen so they can't um be erratic about that kind of thing otherwise they know that someone's going to come in with guns blazing um and so once the money was counted then a, uh, apparently a, a car arrived at my house um, and they said, Michael, you're going free. And by then I'd heard that so many times I didn't believe it. So uh, until I was actually on my way to the airport, I didn't, I thought I was being sold to another group. At what point are you able to breathe that big sigh of relief? Is it when the wheels come up off the ground yeah. or is it when you touch down in that airport back home? Yeah. So gradually I had to be handed off a couple of times before I got to the airport. So gradually the, that weight lifted, you know, gradually I, I started to realize that I was going free but there was no moment that day of of you know i was tense that it could all fall apart until we got going on the air, airplane and um derek the pilot was the only pilot at the airport that day um or that in that moment um no other plane was there at the airstrip and he called the tower and asked for permission to take off and they didn't respond no. so there are a few more tense seconds like are we oh. actually going to here or is something else going to go wrong um but once we got going and took off then 
I felt better. But still, we spent two or three hours in the in the air, and then we landed in Mogadishu. I was still not out of Somalia. <laughs> and then another plane took me away. And I'm that not- was a that was I mean, it was it was bureaucratic and complicated from that moment when the US Air Force took over. Um, and it took hours again to get to Nairobi, much longer than it should have. But it was all fine. I mean, once I was, you know, once I was safe from pirates, I, I don't care what happened. <laughs> I just sat there and had a sandwich. <laughs> what was that moment like when you touched back, uh, touched down on American soil? That must have been some moment then. Well, I was based in Berlin. So we flew from, after a couple of days of recovering in Nairobi, I flew commercial with the FBI and with some members of the German equivalent, which is called the Bay. BKA, yeah. Um, BK, BKA or BKA, BKA. Jesus Christ. Um, uh, those guys accompanied me. Um, a couple of women too accompanied me from Nairobi to Berlin, and then in Berlin we had a sort of family reunion. My mom flew out to Berlin, and a, a few German relatives flew over too. Um, no, that was beautiful. That was really wonderful. And we we did you know they were staying in a hotel so that's where I went to have breakfast every morning so it, in a sense it was a week long reunion I was in no shape for any sort of a party um, that had to wait a couple of weeks hmm. um, I was still in a very cramped state of mind um, yeah. and physically I was in shape I couldn't walk very much um, I didn't know that I couldn't run I tried to run for a tram in Berlin and I had no muscles to run uh-huh. um, all that had happened. so that was from a, a protein deficiency. But once I figured that out, I knew how to rectify. I mean, going to the gym and drinking protein shakes, you know, that helped. And yoga. Yoga helped enormously. Did you ever find out what happened to your uh, friends from the seashells? Yes. As soon as I got in the plane, or as soon as he was done taking off, we were in the in the air. He turned and he said, the pilot said, um, I know two of your friends. I said, what? I don't even know you. What are you talking about? He said, oh, the Seychellois fishermen. I said, oh, Rolly and Mark. He said, yes, I flew them out too. You know, I was the guy who came and got them from Somalia too. Um, And that was my first indication that they were really alive after being parted from them before around around that. Amazing. So my last question that we ask every single guest that comes on this show, regardless of the topic, um, right now for Michael Scott Moore, what makes life worth living? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think not thinking about that quite, quite, you know, too much. Mm. Um, there is a, I learned this in Somalia above all, um, there is a basic sort of throb of life. There is a basic urge to live that um, is below thought. And um, even when everything else is sort of stripped away, that still exists. Um, If it doesn't, you're in trouble. But I I think when it doesn't or when it seems not to exist, um, that's more in the nature of clouds. It's more in the nature of something occluding that feeling um, as opposed to that feeling actually going away. It's so elemental and so primal that um, it's always good to know where it is. (laughs) Beautifully, beautifully put. Well... As I mentioned, we I got you on the show today because um, The Dares in the Sea is our book of the month um, in our newsletter. So I will leave all the links below. 
But please, for anyone out there who's listened to this podcast and your story for the first time, and they want to go and uh, check out the book because you know we've we've barely touched on your story today. Um, this book goes into it in in so much more depth. And I, I honestly, if anyone out there is even remotely interested in this conversation we've had today, please, please, please go and check out the book because it's it's absolutely fantastic. So, where can we point these people to? Where's the best place for them to go and find it? Uh, well, it's available. It should be available anywhere. Even your bookstore should be able to order it, um, even if they don't have it on the shelves at this point. But the, uh, of course, Amazon, but go to an independent website, order it from your favorite bookseller. If you need to find ideas, go to my website, which is radiofreemike.net as opposed to .com. But Radio Free Mike um, has all my all my books. fantastic well i'll make sure all that's linked in the description below um other than that all there is to say michael thank you so much for joining me today i've been a you know an admirer of your work for a long time and it's an absolute honor to finally get to speak to you sir it's great talking to you thank you so much lewis